This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we find ourselves in the ancient city of Pergamum and hear the letter to their church in its original context. Yeah, so we're going to continue on this little journey. Uh, we've been trying to figure out how to apply the hermeneutic that we typically use in our study here at Bema. How do you apply it to the apocalyptic literature of Revelation? And so rather than try to explain the whole thing all at once, we're using the seven letters of the churches to kind of baby step us into and through this learning curve. And so one of the things that we've been doing in these first three letters is just looking at the context. What is the cultural context of the letter? Because we're so used to reading Revelation and being totally just kind of like, it's so vague, it's so crazy, it's so hard to understand. It's just this really intimidating book. And so we're trying to show that it's really not intimidating when you know what you're working with when it comes to apocalyptic literature. And so in chapter one, we looked all at all these references, and all these references that John was using were coming out of the text, and they were coming from what kind of books, Brent? Apocalyptic literature. Right. So so John was pulling very intentionally material from that genre to let his readers know, this is what I'm doing. Books like Zechariah and Daniel. Absolutely. 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 Lots of that. Some Ezekiel, lots of that kind of stuff. So then the second step to kind of the next little baby step we're making is we're trying to show how cultural context changes absolutely everything. And you've been to Turkey with me, Brent. How 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 realistic was that? How much did context change the way you understood Revelation? Well, Revelation in general is just so completely misunderstood. But when you add the context into it, it's just a whole new level on top of everything else. There's almost like a a, a chuckle I hear throughout the group uh, day two or three into our study because it's just so obvious once you're standing there in its context, studying it in its context. And you never know that when you're sitting at home reading the book. And so to bridge that gap is always a ton of fun. So we're actually going to use some pictures today. Not right now, but we're going to use some pictures later. We've been showing a lot of restraint, haven't we, Mr. Billings? Um, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> Because there's a lot of there's a lot of pictures we could show, but we don't want to ruin it. Because if you go there to experience those things firsthand is pretty stunning, and we don't want to rob people of that experience. Well, and the pictures are helpful, but even the stuff we're going to show you, like to see it in person, is still a completely different experience. I had yeah. seen so many of these pictures, not the pictures we're going to show you, but I'd seen pictures of of these sites and these ideas, and then you know three years into the study, going on the trip for the first time. It's still completely different when you're there in person. You get to put your hands on everything. Like it, it's it's good. The trip yeah. is good, even even though we're going to show you a bunch of stuff today. Absolutely. And we were looking through photos today, going, "Well, we can't show that one or that one because that's going to ruin that moment, and that would ruin that moment." So there are still pictures we uh, we're holding back. We've gotten the old bag of tricks. <laughs> I debate that it would ruin it, but yeah, you know, nevertheless, there's only so much we can cover on the podcast. That's right. That's right. All right. So we're going to try to continue this journey of, of asking the question, what is the context of each one of these letters? So now what is the context of Pergamum? The next church addressed in Revelation is the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was a cultural center in the early Roman Empire. And Augustus, Caesar Augustus, even declared the city his capital in the province of Asia. Sitting atop the Acropolis of Pergamum to this day are the ruins of the vaulted platform that held the, the, the temple to Caesar Augustus, later redone. If you go there today, people will talk about how it's the temple to Tiberius and other later emperors, but originally the temple to Caesar Augustus. This temple to Caesar had an altar that doubled as a throne, a very common Greco-Roman idea, by the way. Their altars were often thrones. The altar, shaped like thrones, communicated the idea of the rule and the presence of the God. 
So some historians spoke of how you could see the shining temple atop the Acropolis and Pergamum from miles out to sea. Have we talked about what an Acropolis is? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Acropolis. Acropolis is many, many... Uh, Greco-Roman cities uh, were built around an acropolis, mostly for defense. So you typically will have a mountain that the city is kind of built around. And all of your main kind of the, the, the buildings, the center of the city that you need to be protected the most is kind of up on top of that mountain, the Acropolis. Um, it is the peak of the city. And, and that's where everything is kind of defended. And then kind of typically drifting off the acropolis, you'll often have your residential districts, you might have a port if the city is sitting on a port, uh, a harbor, so to speak, or you might have other things down there. But the Acropolis is kind of like the city center. It's the center of power. It's the seat of. And so the Acropolis is often where you find those government buildings, that kind of thing. So we'll we'll look at some cities that even have different kinds of Acropolis. But yeah, Pergamum has a, a great Acropolis. I think I remember this from Sardis when we were in Turkey. Yes, which is one of our conversations coming up here in just a couple episodes. Yeah. So yeah. So we have we have the on top of this Acropolis sat Caesar's uh, temple, and uh, we chose not to throw some pictures of that in here just because. Come see it for yourself. Because of the political prominence of Pergamum, the city was also given because it was Caesar Augustus, like the Caesar Caesar Augustus. It was his capital. The city was given what was known as uh, Potesti Gladi. Potesti Gladi. Or the power of the sword, if you say that in English. The power of the sword. The Romans had a double-edged sword known as the symbol of imperial power. If a city or colony had the word, the, the, the power of the sword, then they had been given the right to make decisions with the authority of Caesar. The rulings were as true as if they had been uttered by Caesar himself. But this wasn't the only throne residing in Pergamum's Acropolis, far from it. In fact, decades ago, the gigantic altar to Zeus was moved to a museum in Berlin, and uh, the altar sat just a couple hundred yards away from the temple to Caesar. Covered in gold leaf, this throne stood some 44 feet tall from the base of the stairs, which are still sitting there in Pergamum, and would have been another attribute to make the Acropolis visible from miles out to sea. But there aren't just two thrones that sit in Pergamum. No, Pergamum also served as the Neochorus. We've used Neochorus. What would be the equivalent to Neochorus? Brent, what word should we think of? I say Neochorus, you say... Apparently nothing. <laughs> uh, I say Neochorus, you say capital. Capital, like a, oh yes, yes, like yes. A capital, you know? Um, so, so it's also the Neochorus, not just of Caesar, not just of... Uh, of Zeus. It was also the neochorus of Dionysius, the Greco-Roman god of wine and orgy. The temple to Dionysius served as the starting point for what was called the Sacred Way and also warranted the construction of the tallest theater in the ancient world. Still an acoustic marvel to this day. Uh, you stood, you sat in the theater and heard me talk all the way down to the bottom of this thing and you could hear me, correct? Yep, absolutely. Clear as day. The sacred way weaves its path down the Acropolis and past some 17 other temples to major Greco-Roman gods. Without a doubt, the pagan worship present in Pergamum was second to none. This Dionysian worship culminated in the annual festival to Dionysius every year where there would be a consumption of raw meat, 
drinking of incredible amounts of wine, and indulgence in rampant sexual immorality. Local law actually stated that a woman was not free to marry in this pagan culture unless she had lost her virginity in the Dionysian festival. So, so we're not talking about just like, oh, yeah, it was kind of a pagan place. Like this is, this is the seat of pagan sexual immorality, idolatry. This is where it runs unchecked, rampant in Pergamum. You want to talk about total depravity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, this is getting pretty darn close, <laughs> yeah. at least as a culture. So we have some – let's pause and look at a few pictures so we have a presentation for you in the show notes there if you find the link and click on that if you're not driving and have the ability to look at photos. So uh, this uh, first photo here is a photo of the theater kind of from up top. You can see how tall this theater is and, and you can see all the way down to the bottom. If you look all the way over to the very, very right, like all the way over in the upper right hand corner, you see this little white blob kind of over the hill. And that's the, the the ruins of the temple of Dionysius, which we're going to show you here in just a moment. But I just want you to get a perspective here, because if you look at that the ruins of that temple, and then just in front of that, so a little bit, if you move a little bit left, you see the altar, the ruins of the altar of Dionysius there. But then what happens is the sacred way basically runs right across the stage of the theater. Like the stage of the theater has been built intentionally to uh, to be the, the beginning of the sacred way. Like the Dionysian festival started, part of the reason they built this theater was for the Dionysian festival. It would have happened every single year. They would have started with all of these shows, and, and a part of the show would have been the beginning of the Dionysian festival, starting at the temple, and then moving down the sacred way. So if we go to the next picture here. Well, I've actually, yeah, in the next picture, I've highlighted the temple itself and the altar and then the way. The perfect way, so you can see that. Just in case you couldn't make the, it, up. the details are a little bit small in the in the wide photo, but it's good to have that perspective of everything that's going on here. Absolutely. All right. So this next photo here, uh, it's hard, kind of hard to know what you're looking at unless you're standing there. But that's the ruins of the Dionysian uh, temple. There, it's kind of the footprint, the pad on which those are the doorposts that would have sat there for the the temple sitting there in that photo. And then next photo here, we're going to turn around and we're going to look. We're standing on the steps of that same temple and we're looking down the sacred way. And you'll notice almost dead center of your photo there is the ruins of the altar. Now that altar would have been covered as the festival got started, that Dionysian festival. They would have covered that altar in raw meat, just hundreds of pounds of raw meat. Because again, the Dionysian festival, as the god of wine and orgy, there is a whole bunch of drinking, and there's a whole bunch of raw meat, and there's going to be a whole, much, a whole bunch of sexual immorality. All right, so uh, one of the stops that I make uh, on the trip, and you'll actually see that in this next picture here, is to the remains of, uh, uh, well, what would we call this? Uh, a three-story storefront, Brent. This is a, a storefront. It's on the Sacred Way. The Sacred way, way goes right in front of this store, and there are three floors to it. The first floor uh, and had the remains, and so you actually, in, in this picture here, you see um, kind of the group standing in the store. I wanted you to have like a reference point for, you know, what kind of size are we looking at, and that gives you kind of a reference point. This next picture is going to show you two shots of the first floor, one from one direction and then one from the other. And on the left there, you have this picture of, you can kind of see the remains of one of the wine vats there on your left and maybe uh, another wine vat over on your right, and there's a third one right at the bottom of the picture. And, and that one, that picture on the right just kind of spins you around. So you're seeing it from up above and you can see that. So you would have walked, you can 
see the sacred way there in the back, and then you can you can see how you would have walked into the store, and immediately you would have been on a floor with a bunch of wine vats. And then floor number two uh, is these two photos here on this next slide, the one on the left, and you'll notice this large kind of vat this construction, this square construction to your left of that photo. And then if you look at the photo on the right, you'll see it from a different angle. This is where um, uh, they called this a vomitorium. Now, vomitorium is used in a lot of architectural terms to mean like at the, a theater where you spew out, you vomit out of the theater. That's a correct usage of the term for sure. The team that did the work here, I can't remember if it was the Harvard team or the German team. I want to say it was a German team that did uh, the archaeological work here. They called this, for lack of a better term, a vomitorium because, um, well, let's just jump up to the third floor here, and you'll see you'll see these two, this is called a, there are two triclinniums. That table is called a triclinium. A triclinium is a three-sided table, kind of shaped like a horseshoe. By jump up to the next photo, he does mean to go to the next slide. Yes. So. If you haven't already done that. Yes. So you should be looking at what looks like kind of two horseshoes facing each other. These are two tricliniums, and people would have reclined. You basically recline. Instead of sitting kind of at the table, you recline on the table. And there's a little shelf. If you look really closely, there's a little shelf right around the the table top, and that's where they would have placed the wine, the food, and you recline on the triclinium, and you eat, and you imbibe, and you get drunk, and you eat meat. And of course, if you get drunk enough, and you eat enough raw meat, uh, not to get graphic, but what's going to happen, Brent? You're going to go throw it all up. That's right. And so then you end up in the second floor, which was the, the, the photos we showed you on the slide previous, and that's what that second floor is for. So you have this entire storefront created for the worship of Dionysius and the Dionysian festival where uh, the team that did the archaeology here believes what, what, what happened is that people would have come into the store to get their wine. They probably had like a festival coin. I don't know. Sometimes if you go to some kind of a festival, a beer festival or something, you'll get a little token that says you've paid your entrance fee and then you just kind of get however many free drinks or however, however it's going to The same idea probably here where you went in, you got your wine, you went up and you reclined. They probably had many of these storefronts. They found more than one. And you probably had many of these storefronts along the sacred way, places where you could get drunk, places where you could eat the meat. And, and who knows how the sexual morality worked into all of this stuff. And if that took place within this storefront, this is the pagan culture that you're dealing with when you think about a place like Pergamum. And this, this is kind of a fantastic case to go to Turkey, though. Absolutely. Because when you're in this triclinium and you've got your group of people, you can actually recline around the triclinium as they would have been doing it. It's kind of hard. Like if you've never, if you've never done that, if you've, if you're not used to like who is, we don't do that. That's not how we, that's not how our eating culture works. Right. So to, to go there and to, and to have the actual structure, like you can kind of replicate it a little bit. But we don't even have the the right furniture for it. So to go there and to be able to actually arrange your group like that and, and experience what it's like, how you would converse with someone, it's it's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so we have the throne of Caesar. We have a throne to Zeus. We now have looked at a throne to Dionysius. All these thrones, by the way, come with deeply embedded pagan idolatry and immorality. Like that's... That's just crazy. But but we're still not done. Brent, there, we, we could still talk about more, and we will. This wasn't the only pagan worship that found itself centered in this city. Pergamum was also the home to the largest Asclepion in the ancient world. 
Asclapion is the word. Think hospital. I say Asclapion. You think hospital. Um, Asclapius was the god of healing. And the Asclapion was their equivalent of a hospital. One could think of the Asclapion in Pergamum as the, uh, the Mayo Clinic of their day. It was the best of the best medical treatment in the pagan world that, uh, that the Roman world had to offer. And so people would come from all over to go to Pergamum just to visit. Lots of cities had Asclopions, but nobody had an Asclopion like Pergamum. The only one that rivaled Pergamum was the Asclopion in Corinth, by the way. Corinth was uh, another place that had a very well-known Asclopion. But we actually have some pictures of this as well. And so if you go to your, your next photos there, this is, so this is the same sacred way. You see this kind of uh, uh, paved, colonnaded, beautiful way you would have walked down. This is the same way that started all the way up on the Acropolis. And now miles later, you're now still on the sacred way, which is going to find its ending at the Asclopion. So the sacred way goes from the Dionysian temple to the Asclopion, at the bottom of the sacred way. So you come down the sacred way, and uh, if you go to the next picture, you might see a, a good representation of like their check-in. Um, this would be where you would, uh, to lack of a better word, you might check in and register here to use the Asclopion. Uh, they'd have your name on file because, of course, to use the Asclopion, you would either have to pay some kind of amount uh, up front before you could use it, or you they did have an arrangement where you could actually make monthly payments and just kind of have access to the Asclopion if you're thinking, golly, this sounds like really similar to how our systems work. Good, you are smelling what I'm cooking, all right? Uh, you'll also notice there, there's like a, almost like a baptistry in that same photo there. And, and, and you can, before you would have used the Asclopion, you had to bathe, you had to ritually cleanse yourself, you had to make sure that you were right um, physically, you were right spiritually, you were right mentally and emotionally before you entered the place of healing. So the foreground is like a bench, Basically, kind of steps. It had a circular stepway, kind of an entryway up into kind of the registration, and then and then that kind of middle ground spot, not the trees in the very back, but it, kind of in the middle is that that's the baptistry you're talking yep, about. Absolutely, there's a cleansing pool there. Absolutely, and to call it a baptistry would probably be the wrong word, but it gives you the right idea. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And then this next picture, uh, eventually, you, you once you register, you go down, you're, you're going to enter the complex itself. Now, this complex has a big gated courtyard. The courtyard itself is a pretty uh, large um, area. And it, you'll notice there kind of mm, to the right of the picture, you'll notice a little incense altar sitting uh, right to the center of that. There's lots of debate about what it exactly is. Um, I like the work that the team did there. They said that was probably an incense altar. Before you enter, you offer incense to Asclopio, uh, Asclopius, saying, hey, I worship you. And here's, so here's one of the questions you, you end up bumping up against is, can a, can a follower of the God of Israel use the hospital? Can you go to the Asclopius if they're going to require you to give incense in order to be treated? There's a big uh, uh, gateway at the end of this courtyard. Before you enter the main part of the uh, of the complex, uh, there was a big seal at the top of this large gateway, and it said, death may not enter here, was the inscription of that seal. Death may not enter here. 
the next picture. Uh, now you're kind of looking. Now you've walked into the main complex. You can you can get a grasp of the size and the immensity of everything going on here. They would have had a library where you would have studied about all of your your illness and your diagnosis. There was a theater. If you look all the way in the back, all the way in the back of that photo, not the very top hill, but kind of right back behind those pillars, you see a theater, the ruins of a theater there. They would have played the story, the myth of Asclepius there routinely. There's going to be uh, mud bath houses um, where you could get a mud bath, uh, again, for your health and your recovery. Um, there was just all kinds of things in this complex. You were very involved in your own recovery. Come with me. We'll talk about it more there in person. Let's see what our next photo has. So eventually you want to go to the the reason you've come is probably for some kind of diagnosis. And so you have a diagnostic center. And in order to go into the diagnostic center, you're going to kind of go underground. And there's this long tunnel that you're seeing now in this photo. And this tunnel takes you deep down into the diagnostic, kind of the belly of this Asclepion complex down into the diagnostic center. It's not down, down, like a steep downward. It's this ever gradual. You're only going like one floor underground. Right, but it's this long... Now, look at the shape of the tunnel there. Let's go to the next photo. That tunnel has been designed to give you a particular kind of acoustic um, uh, response because right down the side of this tunnel flows water. And the main kind of image driving Asclepian worship is water. And they said Asclepius's voice was like the sound of rushing water. Asclepius' voice is like the sound of rushing water. Does that ring any bells? Anything you read in Revelation 1, Brent? Maybe. Yeah. He would have the sound, his voice, like the sound of? Rushing water. Rushing waters. And again, they're playing off of all this pagan culture. And so here, as this water kind of gradually runs down here, um, you sit in the tunnel. You can hear it like all oh, yeah. the way through the tunnel. It's yep. very prevalent. Right. Think of like if you were to go to a spa, this is really kind of quiet, but they have music or whatever playing, maybe the sound of rushing water itself, but it definitely had that kind of feel to it as you go down the tunnel. And that's just a really small stream. They had much more water there um, when, when this was fully operational. Uh, the next photo here, um, this is a, a, just a shot of the diagnostic center. Once you kind of get down um, into the diagnostic center, they would have had all these bays where we assume they probably had beds and patients on beds being diagnosed. And we'll talk a lot more about that in person if you ever get to come. But this is Asclepian. Let's see what the next photo has. Um, oh, yes. Uh, once you experience your healing, oh, this is so much fun. Once you experience your healing, uh, you would come back to the Asclepion and you would uh, come tell the priests about how you've been healed. And they would put your name and your story and your ailment and the story of your cure on a big white stone. And so all throughout uh, uh, the Asclepion and Pergamum, you see all these white pillars with a bunch of names and the condition that was healed. So your name would go on a white stone as a testimony to how you had experienced healing from the gods, from the god Asclepius. Um, in Corinth, actually, the Asclepion in Corinth, by the way, they actually had to, if, if a body part had been healed, you had to make a sculpture of that body part, and that was what you left in the Asclepion in Corinth. Instead of your name going on white stone, you sculpted a white body part that had been uh, cured, which is interesting that in Corinth, Paul writes, what big idea, Brent? That we're the body of Christ. Yeah, and we are all different. Different members, different, different parts members, of the body. Different members, different parts of the body. So you can see how well that plays in Corinth in a place where they would have known all about Nosclopion with just body parts, tens of thousands of body parts everywhere. And that's where Paul chooses 
you know, context is driving everything here. And then, and then this next photo, uh, there's that incense altar from the courtyard and the symbol of Asclepius sits on the base of this incense altar. And if you look at that close enough, you'll notice that what you're looking at is a shield and two snakes, two snakes coming together, uh, uh, or is it one snake, Brent? Is it one snake or two? It looks like two. Okay, so you have a shield and snakes coming together. And typically, that's not the typical sign of Asclepius. The Asclepian sign is almost always a staff with two snakes winding around the staff. You'll see it on ambulances and whatever. Oh, like, it's wait, very common. Wait, we're, we're using that same symbol today? Oh, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> if I pull out my health insurance card, I have blue shield... And or blue cross or and and often on these medical I have in fact uh, I was told was it orthopedics um, when they graduate from uh, their training and get there and and get ready to actually practice the thing they're given is a big staff with two snakes that's sitting in almost every single one of their Ooh. offices so very 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 interesting to me but uh, not not condemning necessarily any of it, just trying to show you, like, this isn't just history. Like, this is still in our world today. We still have deeply embedded roots in our belief of things that we learned all the way back in the Greco-Roman pagan world. All right. So we've, we've looked at a lot of stuff here in Pergamum, right? And we, fair bit. And we still haven't talked about it all. We went to more temples than this when you were in Pergamum. Yes, Brent? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's more. We could easily... We could easily I mean, we talk spent about hours there. A- absolutely, yeah, a- almost a whole day. We could easily talk three times as much about the relevant context of Pergamum, but that would th- the work we've done here should set the stage for us to look at the letter of Pergamum. So, Brent, if you can, how about you read us the letter uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and um, and we'll listen for culture. We'll listen for context to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Really hammering home that Satan bit. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. All right. So hopefully, as people heard that, all kinds of culture is jumping out to them. Uh, They might have even been having that little revelation chuckle on the other end of this podcast. Who has the sharp double-edged sword, or even later, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. These all show up in this letter. These are references to the potesta gladii. Potesta gladii, the power of the sword that was present in Pergamum and a cross-reference to the power and authority of Christ. While we didn't have time to unpack every single temple, the Library of Athena was a big one that sits on, the, on top of the Acropolis. Uh, the sword of her mouth, uh, the reference only gets juicier as we realize the power of words, or more particularly, God's word. Yeah, I mean, how, how often, like we've been talking about 
like the power is in the word since the beginning of this whole series. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our next reference here. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. Uh, whether this is a reference to one of those particular thrones we already mentioned, like like literal temple thrones, Caesar, Zeus, Dionysius, or the myriad of others that you're going to find, whether it's that or just a blanket uh, a blanket statement, uh, a reference to this incredibly pagan city, uh, the cultural reference is unmistakable. Uh, what about the next reference? The teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Uh, we've talked about the whole Balaam issue with Jude, with Second Peter. We've already talked about that. We talked about how it came from the Midrash and, and about how people are like, well, it's Midrash. It's not in the book of Numbers. And yet, and yet, the New Testament authors clearly pulling off of that Midrash uh, without any hesitation. John nails the message uh, to the Neochorus of Dionysius right on the head. This annual festival was steeped in idol meat and sexual immorality. To live in Pergamum would be to reject the daily temptation to give into the cultural narrative of your day. And yet some people are, are struggling, apparently. They're struggling with the teaching of Balaam that says, this is okay. You can have both. Was the story of Balaam, did that have food sacrificed to idols? It had idolatry. Um, so they end up, because of the sexual morality they commit with the Moabite women, they end up also serving Moabite gods. It becomes this long storyline that culminates with all kinds of death and destruction. So it's interesting that it flips it around. It starts with the food sacrificed to idols, and then it goes on to the sexual immorality. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. Yep. So, uh, let's see. Do we have another reference? How about, uh, it, it was also, uh, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Obviously a reference to the healing God offers and a subversive reclamation of the practice so prevalent in the local Esclapion. By now we should be uh, getting used to the idea that Revelation is deliberately playing off of the cultural context of its original audience. These aren't vague references to future entities, but direct references the original audience completely understood without hesitation. But there's a new idea that we need to introduce ourselves to. One likely to make our minds explode as we realize what John is doing in the writing of this incredible letter. It's one thing to use the culture to brilliantly craft a teaching the audience needs to hear. We would call that clever. Like when you hear these letters just in their cultural context, Brent, are you like, oh yeah, that's, that's really well written. That's a really great point. Wonderfully done. He's hitting all the all the big points. Absolutely. It would be clever enough. But John is doing so much more than that. Besides culture, where is John pulling his material? From the text. But what the text? It's in the text. While we hinted at this earlier in our discussion of Revelation, it's time to bring it back and put it to work here in our study. John is getting all of his content from the Hebrew scriptures. Everything John is writing about and his references to culture also comes from the Tanakh. You're like, no, Marty, you just told me it came from culture. It comes from both. John is using Tanakh to talk exactly about their culture. Often these references are coming from other pieces of apocalyptic literature, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. This is almost impossible to grasp immediately, and I had to study this concept in Turkey for some time before it finally settled into my consciousness. But here's an example from Pergamum. Here's one example, and then we'll really dive into this hermeneutic in the next podcast, the next episode. Here's an example from Pergamum. Why does God choose to use Balaam as his reference to the people of Pergamum? Because the book of Numbers provides the contextual, think Remez, 
the contextual material for the lesson John is trying to teach. As we mentioned in our study, and, and, and Brent just brought it back up here just a moment ago, uh, we mentioned our study of Jude and our study of Second Peter. Jewish tradition taught that Balaam was the one who told Balak to entice the Israelites into sexual sin in Numbers 25. By using Balaam as his reference to the Tanakh, John teaches an entire sermon without ever writing it down. Every Jew who hears that reference is going to understand what John is saying. Hey, we've been here before. We can't fall into temptation here in Pergamum. The same principle could be used for every reference, sword of my mouth, or where Satan has his throne, or a new name written on a white stone. Where is John getting all of his material? Obviously from culture, but each one of these also comes from the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, the text. So we're going to take these principles in our next, into our next episode as we look at the letter to Thyatira. And uh, Brent, we're going to pull uh, these things apart. We're going to try to take this whole three-pronged approach. We're going to try to apply it. Uh, and really, it's become a two-pronged approach at this point. We're going to apply that to Thyatira and try to let this become clear. It's probably not clear yet. You might think you know what Marty's saying. You might kind of get it. Um, chances are good it hasn't really taken root and sunk in the depth and the gravity of what John is doing. John is so insanely brilliant. Absolutely. In, in what he writes. Absolutely. It's like, it still amazes me today. Like seven years into this study, I'm yeah. still like, how does he do this? Absolutely. Yep. Next episode's one of my favorite conversations. Yep. All right. Well. Without further ado, then let's let's finish this podcast. I mean, it doesn't really help people. They still got to wait a week yeah. until the next one. But that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you have any questions about the show, just go to baymontdiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. Again, I definitely withheld a. I have a little activity I do for that, so we definitely held back a picture for that because I wouldn't <laughs> anybody that went on the trip. I think we're talking about too much about what we're not yeah. showing people. Well, it's because people got to we got to whet the appetite yeah, to go on the trip. Too much, you know? too much appetite. I'm right. gonna cut that out. All right, all right, all right. All right.